Welcome back to the Burrow Shire podcast. This is episode two, the second one. I'm Brandon Vaught, <laughs> one of the co-hosts here with my best and friend, the other co-host of the podcast, Father Blake Britton. <laughs> Father Blake, one in the books, and here we go with the second one. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. <laughs> now, the title of this episode is Becoming Saints in Our Time. Becoming Saints in Our Time. Lots of talk in the Catholic world about becoming saints. You know, thank, thank God it's become common verbiage to hear people say, you know, I'm striving to be a saint. I want to be a saint. You know, that the only thing matters is to be a saint. You got the Leon Blanc famous line about there's only one tragedy in life, and that's not to have been yeah. a saint. But the title of our podcast is not just becoming a saint and how to do it, but becoming a saint in our time and yeah. why it matters that we were each born where we were and when we were and what that has to do with sanctity, what it has to do with becoming a saint. Let's back up a little bit, though, and start with the first part of that title on becoming saints, because as I mentioned, even though it's popular to talk that way today, it hasn't always been that way in the church, mm -hmm. especially for lay people. You, you know, priests mm -hmm. have a leg up on us, you know, priests and bishops always had the potential to be saints, but for many centuries in the church, it was not considered normal for lay people with families, with jobs to become a saint or to aspire to sainthood. When did that really yeah. change? Well, we can trace his origins back to St. Francis de Sales in his wonderful book, Introduction to the Devout Life. He's one of the first major saints, not to say that he's the only one, but he's one of the first major thinkers in the church, one of the first doctors of the church to really start reflecting on how can every single baptized Christian share in the call to holiness. However, it doesn't become this universally taught reality until really the Second Vatican Council in its document, Lumen Gentium, chapter five. And in that chapter, which is entitled The Universal Call to Holiness, Mother Church makes this bold claim that every single baptized Christian is called to sainthood and that every single baptized Christian in their own specific way and form is called to actualize that vocation to sainthood. Of course, this would also be widely popularized by St. Jose Maria Escriva in his Opus Dei movement, which also sought to encapsulate the spirit that was piercing through the Second Vatican Council of Universal Call to Holiness. So it is something that is spoken about nowadays on a wide level, thank God. St. John Paul II was another huge supporter of this notion of universal call to holiness. He mentioned it in many homilies, many audiences, and it was a theme throughout his papacy. And it continues to be a theme even now under our current Holy Father, Pope Francis. We know that one of his most recent ap apostolic exhortations focused on holiness, how to achieve sainthood. And he also mentions it in Evangelium Gaudium, his first wonderful apostolic, apostolic exhortation. My favorite of Pope Francis' documents, by the way, oh, just, Evangelium Gaudium. Just beautiful, just magnificent. It's, it really is a great work. I, um, it was a bishop um, who told me that when he met Pope Francis uh, and mentioned Evangelium Gaudium, Pope Francis like immediately jumped on it and said, that's what my whole pontificate is about. Like, if mm. you want to understand the core of my papacy, what I'm trying to do, my program, Evangelium yeah. Gaudium. So if you haven't read that document, read it. It's magnificent. Well, I think the first three encyclicals, and not to get too far off on a side note, <laughs> but now this really is like one of our conversations, This is basically right, how our Burrowshire. conversations <laughs> tend to go, but continue. But I, but I really think that the first encyclicals of the last three Holy Fathers, so St. John Paul II, 
Pope Benedict XVI, who I sometimes accidentally refer to as Saint Benedict XVI, one day, and one our day. Holy Father Pope Francis. So, Redemptor Hominis, Deus Caritas Est, and Evangelium Gaudium. Those three encyclicals really do capture the heart of, of what millennials need to actualize in our time. So you have this notion of reclaiming the profundity of divinization, meaning the profundity of Christ, that he became flesh and dwelt among us, and what that means for us and for our salvation. That's St. John Paul II. Secondly, Deus Caritas Est, this notion of we need to help reintroduce into the world this God who is not purely an abstraction, but this God of love, this God who exists in history. And then thirdly, the way in which to do that as I always say, Pope Francis gives us so wonderfully, is this Evangelium Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, letting that shine forward. So what were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Universal, call, Universal to call to holiness. Yeah, so this, especially in, in Pope Francis's recent uh, apostolic exhortation, he mentions that vocation. So every single baptized person is called to sainthood. It doesn't matter if you're a middle school teacher it doesn't matter if you're a music director, if you're a priest, if you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're a husband and a father working in the world, whatever that is, we're called to sanctify the space in which we find ourselves. I love being Catholic for many reasons. Chesterton said there are thousands of reasons why I'm Catholic, but they can all <laughs> be summed up in one because it's true. But this is yeah. yet another one because it provides an easy answer to maybe the most important question that has plagued mankind throughout history, which is what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose yeah. of life? Why am I here? And the Catholic Church, f to the baby, to the millennial, to the elderly, gives one answer to everybody, which is to be a saint. That's it. Yeah. That God made you because he wants you to be a saint, to be a person fully alive and in love with, with God and his church. Yeah. Um, and you can be. You can be. This was, this was the great... Beautiful news proclaimed by the Second Vatican Council and thereafter specifically by the by the popes It's not an impossible task See sainthood is not reserved as an impossible task for the few sainthood is rather designed is Ordained for all those baptized in Christ and this is good news This is something that's achievable and it's achieved in that genius way given to us by St. Therese of Lisieux this little way by doing what St. Teresa of Calcutta said, extraordinary things, excuse me, ordinary things with extraordinary love. So by fulfilling reality as it's given to us, by, by fulfilling our daily task, which are seemingly mundane and simple, but to do those things with a recognition of Christ doing them with us and through us and in us by merit of our baptism and confirmation and Eucharist, that in itself is already transforming history. It's redeeming history. It's sanctifying history in a profound way. One thing that's kind of bugged me in recent years is e even after Vatican II with its emphasis on the universal call to holiness, even with the boatload of, of books and videos and articles and retreats and conferences that have been preached about this subject, even with the, the thousands of Catholics that have awakened to this call to universal holiness, there's still, it seems to me, a general climate militating against this idea within the church that mm. whenever you really are striving for sainthood, whenever you, yeah, you want to yeah. maximize, say, your piety, your devotion, your knowledge, your, um, your spiritual disciplines and practices, there, there's still a little sense of, oh, come, come on, don't, don't go yeah. too far. Don't go 
overboard. And, and I've talked with a lot of young people that feel that same thing. And you almost have to sort of go into, into your own interior life because you, you don't find so much support for this driven call to holiness. Have yeah. you experienced that at all? A hundred percent. I mean, this is the residue of secularism and atheism seeping in to the life of the church, right? And to some people and their attitudes in the life of the church. I have a school, thank God, a parish and school, um, or rather I'm the parochial vicar at a parish and school is a better way to put it. Uh, and we have kindergarten through eighth grade. Every single season of Lent, I challenge our kids to holiness. My first year that I was here at the parish and I did that, I got some negative feedback from the parents. They thought I was too extreme for the Lenten practices, especially for the little ones. I mentioned things like eating only bread and water on Fridays, uh, sleeping on the floor, giving up television for 40 days, giving up video games for 40 days. So I got emails from parents, phone calls from parents saying, Father Blake, we think that's a little bit too harsh and too much for this age group. But I stuck to my guns when it came to that. This year, I got an email from a parent that just pierced my heart. And it was one of our kindergarten parents. And she sent me this email and said, Father Blake, my child really took your call to Lent seriously. And she sent me a picture of her son as a kindergartner sleeping on the floor for, on Ash Wednesday night. And that pierced my soul because I thought the only thing that keeps people from becoming saints is that we tell them they can't be. And because we've settled for less piety, less zeal, less passion than is rightly ours as Christians. And so this ha this mentality has been very poisonous for us of, well, don't be too pious. You know, those are saint stories from those times, from like the 12th century and 15th century, but that's, it's not practical nowadays. No, that is not true at all. It's even more necessary nowadays in a society that's being overrun by a lack of sense of the transcendent, by a lack of sense of, by a lack of sense of, of the profound and the beautiful. They need these amazing icons of holiness that live live it to the extreme. And I'm not saying extreme in the unhealthy sense, but in the extreme of following Christ to the very end. Uh, Nunquam amabo satis, one of the great mystics of the 19th century, said, I, I can never love you enough, Lord. I can never love you enough. So even from our children to our grandchildren to adults to the elderly, this piety, this deep passion and zeal for holiness is achievable. And not only achievable, it should be lived it really should be lived. It's we're in desperate need of a lot more John Vianney's, Catherine of Siena's, Charles Borromeo's, Teresa Avila's, etc. I want to redeem that word extreme. Like you said, it has almost a universally negative connotation. Right. Extremists are too extreme, right? But mm -hmm. all the examples you just mentioned chased the extreme. You know, I'm thinking of yeah. also Pier Giorgio Fersati, another one of our friends and mm. patrons, to the heights, verso lauto. It wasn't like Let's go kind of high, you know, but right. not too high, but just kind of high. No, all right. the way up, all the way up. I, I don't want to settle for spiritual mediocrity. Um, yeah. And I'm finding a lot of other young people coming out of the, the proverbial closet saying the same thing, that most of my, you know, parochial life, most of my friends, most of what I've been fed has been being content with spiritual mediocrity. But now there's this growing surge of people that says, I, I want something more than that. And this is a dangerous demon. This is a dangerous spirituality that I'm sure we'll have a whole podcast on later on called The Demon of Ascetia. There's a wonderful book entitled The Noonday Devil. It's by a Benedict abbot named Abbot Nault, N-A-U-L-T. 
And this book names the demon of Assetia, which is commonly translated as sloth, but really in the deeper sense is this is the demon that fights against your personal holiness. This is the demon that does not want you to become a saint. This is the demon that wants us to settle for mediocrity. Well, Abbot Nolt says that's the most proliferate demon in our time. This is the demon that's infiltrated the majority of Christian hearts. And and I agree because I even see it seep into my own heart sometimes, this notion of, you know, what you're a good enough priest, you know, the people like you, you know, you don't have to do that. No, no, that's not the kind of priest I want to be. I, I want to be a priest that strives for the heights, that goes to the very depths of holiness. I want to be another St. John Vianney. That, that's, that's what we're created to be, you know? And so to settle for anything less is, is to assault our dignity as Christians, to assault our dignity as beloved daughters and, and, and sons of God. So that's something that, uh, that zeal, that passion for sainthood is something that really needs to be recaptured in the heart of the people, and then, of course, supported by the ministers and leaders of the church. So we hope, if nothing else, that this podcast makes you feel normal if you share that desire to go yeah. to the extremes and depths of sanctity. If that's you, if you're watching this, listening to this, we're with you. You're not, you're not alone. And even if you don't find support in your parish, your community, there's lots of other people out there that have that same burning desire as you do. Now, we've talked a lot about becoming saints here. Let's switch gears and focus on the second part, which I think is is very important on becoming saints in our time, in our yeah. time. This is something I didn't reflect on too much until you and I became friends, but why is it that God put us here mm. in this place at this time? That yeah. it, it's not yeah. accidental, it's not arbitrary. God had a reason for putting us here in this place in, the, in this time. And of course, all the contingencies around you, like your family, your friends, he wanted you to raise these children or participate mm -hmm. in this community or whatever. But in the realm of sanctity, why did God put you in this place and in this time to become a saint? Say something <laughs> about that question. Yeah, man. This, this has been a struggle for me, Brandon. Um, it's been a struggle for me for a while because I'll be honest in saying that I am an old soul. Like I would happily live in like 10th century England. <laughs> I would love, you know, Me I too. would live in 14th, 15th century Germany or France, you know, or Italy. Um, I would love to, to, to just live amidst that time of music and culture, reciting Shakespeare, you know, I reading happily through. happily live like in first century Nazareth, you know, that'd be <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> I feel like there was someone really famous who lived there all that time I would like to meet. Right? Mary, the mother of God. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so... I, this has been difficult for me because I often ask the Lord in prayer, Lord, why would you give me a soul that aches for another age? And so this became a point of prayer for me on a regular basis, actually, um, throughout all my seminary years and, and even into my early priesthood. And the Lord's response, always so profound, always so beautiful, and he's always so gentle. The Lord is never harsh. When the Spirit speaks in the depths of your heart, it's always with this, this profundity, with this sharpness. So it's like a blade. It's like this two-edged sword, right? It pierces, but it, it doesn't destroy. It pierces with a gentle compassion. And the Lord said, I did give you the soul I gave you for the age I gave you. I think of that wonderful moment in The Fellowship of the Ring. Brandon, you could probably quote it much better. Would you mind speaking to that when Gandalf is with Frodo yeah. and Frodo's saying, I wish the ring was never with me. And you, yeah, I, know you I, just, I can only that's recite it because <laughs> I have it. It's big framed right here in my office. It says, this is Frodo speaking, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And of course, the, it is this big calamity of the, the threat of uh, Mordor and this dangerous ring. I wish it yeah. need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, 
and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Yeah, yeah. Those words spoken by Gandalf the Grey could just as easily be applied to each and every one of our hearts. It's not our decision what time we're given, but what to do with the time that we're given. And that gave peace to my heart and soul to hear that, not just from Gandalf, but in prayer to hear that from the Lord. The Lord gave me the soul that I needed for my time. And so in order for us to really become saints in our own age, we have to first and foremost be comfortable in our age, even amidst all of its brokenness. And we have to be willing to struggle, excuse me, and to suffer the shortcomings of this age, which is something I think a lot of people have difficulty with, specifically within the church. I know I have. I know I have. I know you have as well. That's something we speak about on a regular basis. So I think it might be beneficial for us maybe to go through some of those specific challenges of, of our age and how we, who are old souls, we who, who ache for this, for this age of holiness that we seem to be almost out of place living in, how we can address these issues and with our own life live through them. Yeah, let's run through some of them. Uh, you and I compiled a list of some distinct characteristics of this age. Now, some of these are challenges. In other words, some of them make it more difficult today to be a saint than mm. it would have in past yeah, centuries. But some of these are opportunities. You know, some of these are like, well, maybe God put us here because he wants to, he wants us to heroically respond to some of these mm -hmm. challenges, an opportunity for greater sanctity that we might not have had if we were born 500 years ago. Um, so yeah. let's go through them. So I think if you if you said for Catholics, what's the most distinct thing about being born in the early 21st century uh, or early late 20th century, being alive in the early 21st century? I think it would almost be neck and neck, especially for us Americans, between being born in the generation immediately after the Second Vatican Council, so mm -hmm. the generation responsible for implementing the teachings of Vatican II. That's number one. Number two yeah. is the sexual abuse crisis that most of yeah. us, I mean, I came into the church right in the midst of all this sexual abuse crisis. You ordained a priest right in, mm -hmm. the, right in the midst of all this, right almost at the same time that all the Theodore McCarrick stuff was, was breaking. Yeah. Um, so let's spend a, a greater deal of time on these two things. And then there's a few uh, maybe less significant, but still worth discussing mm -hmm. distinctions. So for, first of all, like, what does it mean? Why? Why do you think that God put us here in the wake of this great council? I mean, that's a pretty rare thing. There's only been, what, 20-something councils in yep. the history of the church. So, yeah, so this is, it's rare that people are born after a council and charged with implementing that council. So what does that mean for yeah. us? Yeah, this is something that I don't think many Catholics reflect on enough is what a grace it is that we are the generation that has been entrusted with the implementation of an ecumenical council of Mother Church. So you're absolutely right, Brandon. If, if we were to speak, I think, with people who grew up in the you know, late 60s, early 70s, they would say the Second Vatican Council, especially in the Catholic world, but even in the secular world, was a huge deal. Um, this was what all the headlines were coming out for. And then, of course, you had a lot of turmoil following immediately the post 
conciliar period. So right after the Second Vatican Council, there was a lot of experimentation going on, sort of a lot of struggle on what exactly is the Holy Spirit trying to implement through this council. There was also some who misrepresented the council quite widely, which is a topic I know we can speak on in a later podcast. So the combination of all these different factors have led to 50 years of confusion, 50 years of struggle, 50 years of a lot of graces, which I don't think have spoken of uh, enough. Pope John Paul II was adamant on that, that sometimes we allow some of the negative effects of the post-conciliar period to override the immense positive effects of the post-conciliar period, which are numerous and which we'll also speak about at a later date. I mean, one of them is just this universal call to holiness. I mean, holiness. if nothing yeah, else, implementing that's a that. tremendous uh, gift to the church that now you have millions of lay people aspiring to sainthood. Yeah, just beautiful. That, that alone is significant enough, and there are so many others, and not to mention the re-emphasis on sacred scripture, on the patristics, and the reawakening of an appreci appreciation of the church fathers. So, so, so many things. However, it is typical that a council does not come into proper implementation until several decades afterwards. And what you're finding in our generation is that we're a generation that's been born in a specific time in church history, right when that that fruit of Vatican II, if you will, is ripe for the picking. <laughs> that, that moment that's so crucial in which we've gone through these 50 years of trying to grapple with and understand what the council, what the Holy Spirit through the council was speaking to Mother Church. And now we've had our bumps and bruises. We've had our successes and our joys. Now it's time to start implementing it properly. And that's going to be entrusted to the millennial generation of priest and laity. It is our responsibility. We're that hinge generation that's going to leave specifically to the generation Zers, but then those after them, a proper interpretation and, and implementation of the Second Vatican Council. I cannot underemphasize how vital and important this is to the church history. This is not me trying to be over-exaggerative. This is not me trying to build up Vatican II more than it needs to be. An ecumenical council is already a big deal. <laughs> This is just a fact of history. This is where we find ourselves. And so it's going to be very important for us and for our generation to start, first and foremost, truly coming to a dynamic and intellectual understanding of Vatican II, an authentic interpretation of Vatican II, and then implementing that on a ground grassroots level. I remember that was so clarifying for me when I realized that, unpacking it through conversations with you, when I asked the Lord what kind of saint do you want me to be, Lord? You know, you look across the the centuries and the lines of saints, there's such a varied, diverse tapestry of different kinds of saints. And so yeah. what path do you want me to follow? What saint do you want me to aspire to? And it was through discussions with you and through prayer that I discerned a saint of Vatican II, a saint yeah. of Vatican II. That's the type of saint that the Holy Spirit obviously wants. I mean, there's no debate about it. Yeah. If the Holy Spirit inspired yeah. this ecumenical council, he wants his people to bear it fruit, to, to put it out into, into practice. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we just need holy men and women who teach about the Second Vatican Council, who are theologians mm -hmm. and scholars and all that. It means like implementing Vatican II in my house, implementing yep. Vatican II among my circle of friends. The, the beauty of that council is it addressed almost every realm of culture, from high culture to low culture, from your daily life to the academy. Um, yeah. It has implications for everywhere. And so 
what it means to be a saint in our time has to mean heroically implementing the Second Vatican Council. Yep. And that absolutely. Brandon, would you mind sharing, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but if you could please share one of the ways that you've implemented that in your family on a regular basis, and the one that I'm thinking of for you, because yeah, please give me an example. Because <laughs> tell me which yeah. example to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So if you could just give me an example of your own free will, let me tell you what that example is. <laughs> it, that, that's for a future episode on divine providence and free will and the interplay between those. Right. <laughs> but I mean, please share. I honestly share with. You have to share with our listeners what your family does with the Liturgy of the Hours, because that's a direct fruit of the Vatican too. I mean, that really is. The Sigmatic Council was emphatic on laity sharing in the Liturgy of the Hours and making it accessible to the laity. Um, so can you just share a little bit of how that is in your family? Yeah, I'll do it briefly, because we'll have a whole other episode coming up right, here on right. how and why to pray the Liturgy of the Hours. But real briefly, the Liturgy of the Hours is a set of daily prayers. There's usually five of them um, that, that all clergy and religious are obliged to pray every day. So all priests and religious pray these same prayers every day. The same prayers are prayed all around the world. So it's this beautiful example of the mystical body of Christ joining in prayer. It was very, very rare for a layperson to pray the Liturgy of the Hours before the Second Vatican Council. This goes back mm -hmm. to what we talked about earlier, where you know it was presumed that lay people don't need to get that crazy or that extreme mm -hmm. with prayer. You know, not yeah. uh, <laughs> a lot of people that in my circle say, why can't Catholics be as devout as Muslims? Muslims pray five mm. times a day. And I'm like, we do. <laughs> we pray five times a day too. We like do, that's specifically what the Second Vatican Council called for is a reintroduction of the Liturgy of the Hours. It was reformed in many ways. We'll talk about that in the episode. Mm -hmm. um, right. But specifically that lay people should join the whole church in these prayers. And that's not something that I had experience with before Father Blake and I became friends. I would maybe pray morning prayer or evening prayer every now and then. Those of you that subscribe to the Magnificat magazine, you know, that has the daily readings from the liturgy each day, mm -hmm. that usually has a modified version of morning and evening prayer. So sometimes I'd pray that. Um, but it was after becoming uh, friends with Father Blake and going through spiritual direction a lot and trying to refocus and refine my own prayer life that he was very adamant that according to the church, this is something that you should be doing. It's the preeminent form of, of prayer and all other types of prayer should come secondary. This should become your main priority. You know, you can do all the other types as well, but make sure you're doing this. So I, I adopted it. I started praying the liturgy of the hours, but what was delightful for me as a husband and a father was to see how attracted the rest of my family became to this sort of structured liturgical prayer. Um, mm. It happened organically, I didn't force it, but my young kids wanted to join me. They wanted to come and join me in the kneeler, come join me uh, for morning prayer. And then uh, my wife wanted to pray evening prayer and night prayer with me. And pretty soon we developed this routine uh, where every morning now our whole family comes in and we all do morning prayer together. Even our little kids that can't read, you know, will come in the little Burrowshire library study and they'll march around with their little prayer books and, you know, giggle or laugh or whatever they're doing. But the whole family is there praying the prayer of the church. And then yeah. to close the day, my wife and I, now it's the last thing we do before we go to sleep in bed, we pray night prayer together. That's the nightcap. And then usually most of the other prayers um, I'll do by myself, except after we go to daily mass here and then after daily mass lately, my boys have joined me in praying daytime prayer at that mm -hmm. time. 
Um, it's been it's been wonderful for me on a couple different levels. One, it's united our family in prayer better than almost anything except the family rosary. I don't think I've ever experienced any form yeah. of prayer that the whole family is gravitated toward and can do together because it's kind of a more conversing style of prayer if you pray it that way. But then secondly, it's united my whole family to the greater church to know that, you know, I could tell them, hey, Father Blake is praying this same prayer probably right around this same time. We're praying with mm -hmm. him, you know, or the other priests or bishops that they know and the love. Pope. <laughs> the Pope, the Holy Father's praying these yeah. same prayers, maybe in a different language, but the same prayers, the same readings, the same prayers, the same intercessions, all that. So it's it's linked my family with the entire mystical body, which again is a vision of Vatican II. So I hope yeah. that's an example you were going for. <laughs> you, you <meant. laughs> oh, that was Actually, that wasn't all, it, but... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly the example I was thinking of. And, and there's a practical way that you have answered your vocation to a universal call to holiness, Brandon. There's a practical way that you are actualizing sainthood as a husband and a father. You've literally drawn through obedience to Mother Church and her wisdom through the Second Vatican Council. You've literally drawn your family now into a mystical form of prayer that unites them with the body of Christ throughout the world. I, that's just amazing. So those are the kind of things that when I mention, I know it may sound abstract about universal call to holiness, those are the concrete practical ways that we could start doing these things and implementing Vatican II. Okay, well, we're going to say a whole lot more about Liturgy of the Hours and the fruit of it, yeah. and, and more specifically, how to do it. How do you get started? What are some resources? We'll do that in a future episode. So uh, don't worry if it seems overwhelming to pray five times a day or to get into <laughs> all the books and ribbons. How about, how about this second one that I, I mentioned, Father Blake, that you and I were both born mm, in what yeah, yeah. can probably accurately be described as the darkest period in the American Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. You know, these last yeah. couple decades with all the abuse crisis revelations, which haven't really stopped in a way. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the abuse cases have gone down dramatically, which we're all thrilled about, but these major revelations keep coming. Theodore right. McCarrick, of course, but then other priests and at seminaries, and then most recently, Jean Vanier, the leader of the L'Arche communities. Seems like this never-ending right. uh, sequence of events. And it causes many people, us included, to ask the Lord, why yeah. us, why now? Why did you put us yeah. here at this time? And through talking together, we both discerned, well, it's because you're supposed to be a priest at this time of the abuse crisis. I'm supposed to be a layman at the time yeah. of this abuse crisis. I'll unpack mm. that a little more. Oh, absolutely. Where sin is, where sin is great, grace abounds all the more. <sighs> Three months after my ordination to the priesthood, one of the worst scandals in American history broke. And I was devastated. And I remember going to the Adoration Chapel in our rectory and falling down prostrate and weeping, just crying from the depths of my soul. I cried out of shame. I cried out of embarrassment. I cried out of heartbreak for the victims and their families who had been wounded by the priesthood of Jesus Christ. I wept for our hierarchy, for our leaders. I wept for the laymen and women who would be who would leave the church because of this. Just my heart was just overrun by so many hundreds and hundreds of thoughts. And then the question just rang out, Jesus, why? Why did you ordain me? Why did you make me a priest during this time, Lord? I, I can't do this. I, I'm ashamed now of, of this priesthood. Lord, help me understand why you would ask me to be ordained here and now. 
The Lord's response was so beautiful. He brought up, the Holy Spirit brought up, the theology of icons. So we know that icons, which are a, a style of Catholic art, right? These are, many of us have probably seen icons before, but we know that icons technically are not painted or drawn. They're written because the theology of an icon is that an icon is something that you're supposed to look through, right? Eikos in Greek, this window, you're supposed to look through an icon to literally touch and encounter the reality itself. So if you've seen an icon of Jesus, it's supposed to lead you to an actual encounter with Christ through contemplating that icon. The Lord responded, be an icon, be a sign of contradiction. Show them what the priest is supposed to be. Show them what the priest is supposed to be. And so my response to the crisis has simply been this. I've not try to make podcasts condemning anyone or criticizing anyone, because that's actually not going to help at all. I've not gone out and tried to make excuses for the tragedy, because that's not going to help at all. There's only one true response that myself, as a parochial vicar of a parish, can give. That response is to become a saint, to be a holy priest, to love and cherish and protect my flock with my mind, heart, body, and soul to pray my daily holy hour, to be faithful to my bravery, to adore Christ in the Holy Eucharist, to celebrate liturgies reverently and with deep piety, to hear confessions and anoint the sick and the dying. And so the Lord specifically has, has I felt, a commissioning from him to be a sign of contradiction to the narrative that's currently being woven about the church. And I would say that although this is particular to what I felt in my heart from the Lord, that it is applicable to the church at large. Our response to the crisis First and foremost has to be, Lord, even though it hurts me, I know that I've been born at this time to heal and bring hope to the church. And Lord, the way that I know I'm going to do that is by being faithful to the vocation that you have personally given me. I need to be holy where I am. I need to be holy where I am. So you're doing that now where you are, Brandon, as a husband and a father. You're being holy where you are, and you are teaching your children holiness. And you know what? Those six, soon to be seven children— who knows the thousands and thousands of souls that they will touch and influence in the, in the ages to come and how that will proliferate for the ages to come. Same thing for me. I'm being just a faithful priest in a little city in Florida on the coast that most people don't even know existed, but I trust that my being faithful to this flock, that my loving them with all that I am, that my being a holy example to them will influence a wider community in the years to come. So we cannot allow the abuse crisis to be a place of discouragement. This is not how Christians deal with things. What Christians do is they take a horrible thing, they take a tragedy, they take something that is ugly, they bring it to the beating heart of Christ Jesus, and he does what he always does. He does what he did with the cross. He makes it into a thing of beauty. The cross was an instrument of torture, and now it's a sign of hope. The scandals right now are, are a place of embarrassment and shame, but if we truly allow it to be a learning experience, we truly allow it to be transformed by the grace of Jesus, it can be a reminder to us and a way in which we help the church continue to grow in holiness. You know, sometimes I think about that question we kicked around earlier about why was I born at this time and not another time, and think, man, it would have been great to be born in a culture that was so supportive and encouraging yeah. Catholicism, yeah. like a universally Catholic culture where priests were beloved. There's hundreds mm -hmm. of, of priests and religious, way too many to even know what to do with. They're walking through the streets and staying <laughs> You're with You're telling families. me I have to, 
I have to cover like 3,000 yeah, people just exactly. one priest. <laughs> and we I need think, four priests here. You know? I think, man, how, how much easier it would be to be Catholic in a situation like that. How much easier it would be to be a saint. Yeah. But then almost immediately after I have those thoughts, it comes to me that from the other perspective, how boring such a life would be if it was just like no challenges, no obstacles, everything was supporting your faith. I think of like all these saints who, uh, a lot of missionary evangelist saints who looked for the worst situations possible, mm. the worst mission territories. You know, Damien Amalekai seeing the leper colony, sign me up, that's where I wanna go. Yeah. The, the chaplains in different war zones, you know, where people are dying in horrific ways, that's where I want to go. I want to go to the worst yeah. of the worst because that's where my missionary zeal's inflamed, where it comes alive. And I think yeah. about that for me and for you, for listeners of this podcast. It's probably never been a harder time to be a mm -hmm. priest in America uh, than it is today. It, you could maybe yeah. say the same thing about being a Catholic layman, that it's, oh, yeah. you know, it's extremely oh, yeah. difficult. But there's something about that that excites me. That excites yeah, me. Not, yes, not that it's the course. ideal, but like... You know, we're, we're, we've been given this tremendous opportunity that, you know, most people don't like priests or they have prejudices about priests. They think you're a child abuser just because you have a collar around your neck. Mm -hmm. You know, well, okay, well, then that's a tremendous opportunity to show them the face of a real priest of Jesus Christ. Yep. yep. No, absolutely. And we're in this time right now in history that I, I honestly, I, maybe, I don't think I'm being too, too over the top in this comparison. But I would be so bold as to say that we're in a similar time period as Benedict was right after the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD. We're in a time when we need a generation of Catholics who are literally going to rebuild the basis of Western civilization. Uh, and now with globalization taking place at such a rapid rate through technology, our influence is going to spread even beyond Western civilization. So... What's happening right now is the infrastructure of just humanity in general is being deconstructed. So the infrastructure of the, of the family, the infrastructure of marriage, the infrastructure of spirituality and the sense of the transcendent, the infrastructure of intellectualism and rationality, the infrastructure of religion, all these things are going to be entrusted to our generation to begin – to begin, it will not be complete in our lifetime. And that's something else that we have to claim as well, is we need to start getting back our, our foresight. <laughs> I mean, think of the people who built Notre Dame Cathedral, who started it and never saw it completed. But they knew that their work was worthwhile because in the end, their children's children's children would have a church to pray in. And so that's how I am right now. I'm, I'm being a priest with so much passion right now because I know that I'm gonna die before I see the church completely healed from this wound, and that's okay. Because, Brandon, your children are going to live in a church that is healed from the wound. <laughs> the, the children in my school, the teenagers in my eighth grade class, the kindergartners in my, in my preschoolers, because of how I'm living, because of how you're living, because of how our generation lives, the sacrifice that we make, they're going to grow up in a church that's loved, that's, that's beautiful, that they're going to grow up in a church that has that culture, that infrastructure reestablished because of our sacrifices. And you know what? They're going to look back and they're going to say thank you. They're going to remember us with a tender love and devotion because just like the generation of Charles Borromeo, Charles Borromeo and Philip Neary after Trent, so we are right after Vatican II, we're entrusted with this task of rebuilding and reestablishing the sense of culture. And uh, and I, I'm excited about it. You know, I, I love this, the, the, what is it, the joie, the, the joy of battle joie de verre, in yeah. English. 
Yeah, and yeah. it's uh, just this sense of I love battling things and going to war with these sort of uh, these sort of uh, powers, if you will, to bring about peace and to bring about love. Well, let's talk about quickly because I know we're kind of running out of time. A few, yeah. <laughs> a few of the other. This is, by the way, extremely typical of Burroughshire discussions. Yes, it um, is. <laughs> but you know, we've talked about the fact that we're we've been born in this post-Vatican II generation, mm-hmm. that we've been born in the middle of this sexual abuse crisis. Um, a few other distinguishing traits of our age are, first of all, the technology age, and yeah. that includes the yeah. rapid rise and proliferation of social media, especially. Yeah. Um, secondly, this hyper emphasis on lust and pornography as two of the greatest challenges, especially for mm-hmm. young men today, that um, the digital age has helped make that a more significant challenge spiritually mm-hmm. than it has in past generations. And then um, finally, we live in this sort of disenchanted age. You know, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, talks about the buffered self, that we've closed ourselves off to the transcendent, unlike Mm -hmm. past generations. Maybe we can briefly touch on each of those three things and why they're important considerations when we ask, what does it mean to become a saint in our age? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Like like I said, like you said, we can briefly go through them. I I think it's worth having just a podcast maybe, maybe even on will. each of That's those topics because because it really they're so vital brandon and they affect our generation so profoundly i think we just need to spend some serious time on them man but um first of all technology <laughs> never before has a generation had at their fingertips so much never before has a generation had to learn how to properly and healthily and maturely deal with literally a plethora and really an infinite amount of resources um, specifically resources insofar as not just bodily needs or bodily, you know, re- earthly resources, but resources of information, um, resources of communication. So that's definitely a topic of conversation that our generation is going to have to spend a lot more reflection upon and really start discerning what is our role in maturely interacting with, with technology? What is our role in learning how to adequately and appropriately use these different tools as opposed to allowing them inform and use us. So right now what's happening, unfortunately, is that technology is literally forming human beings. I see this, especially with the little kids at, at my parish, that some of them will spend more time looking at a screen than they do into another human being's face. More time looking at a screen and spending time in front of a television watching little Einsteins than they will spending outside and being formed by nature. So what's happened is nature as formative has been replaced by techno-nature, technology as formative. And this has very serious consequences for the development of children, but also for humanity as a whole. So we're gonna have to really start having that conversation and reflecting on how do we really become holy, become saints amidst this technological civilization that we have built. When it comes to the topic of lust in general, I think that lust has become one of the biggest dangers of current civilization. The reason being is that as technology has increased, dehumanization has also increased with it. So as we become a more technological civilization that interprets things through machines, that interprets even quality of life according to what we can produce through utilitarianism, what happens now is the dignity of the human person is is now reduced. And so we start treating human beings as we do an app. 
So as quickly as we access a TikTok in order to make a video, that's how quickly we also access using another human being's body for our own personal pleasure. They're both, the two apps could be right next to each other and they're both just as easily accessible. So that's something else that we have to start praying about is how can we protect ourselves from this, this qualifying of how we treat technology versus how we treat human beings. And finally, when it comes to the, what was the third point? <laughs> yeah, the third point was we, we live in a disenchanted age Thank where you. Yes, we've lost yes. our oh sense goodness. of the transcendent. Chesterton, Chesterton always comes to mind with this. Yes, he says, yes, whatever they, you're gonna say, they, yes. Yes, I agree with it wholeheartedly, (laughs) of course. It's Chesterton. Chesterton, in his wonderful book, Orthodoxy, probably his most famous work, he mentions in there that God is like a child insofar as he never ceases to wonder at his creation. The sun rises every single day, not because God cannot think of anything more creative to do, but because he never tires of seeing it rise. He has this childlike fascination, and Chesterton says so wonderfully, God looks at the sun and says, again, 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 do it again. Just like, I'm the oldest of four children, so I used to give my little brothers and sisters a plane ride. You know, I'd lay down on my back, and I'd put them on my belly, on my feet, and I'd make them, like, fly over me. They loved it. And anytime I put them down, what was the first thing that they asked for? Do it again, Blakey. They used to call me Blakey. Do it again, Blakey. Do it again. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. One of you guys got my leg workout, right? <laughs> During that time. This sense of fascination with the world, this sense of wonder with the ordinary has died. And it's a, it's a tragic death. It's a tragic death. And so we have to reclaim our sense of wonder. This is absolutely vital. Why is it that millennials and post-millennials are the most globalized, most interconnected, most resourceful, rich generation in planet Earth's history, and yet they simultaneously have the highest rates of depression, suicide, anxiety, opioid and drug abuse in world history. There's a correlation between those two things because something is missing, and that's the sense of a life worth living, a sense of wonder with my own existence because it's being numbed by the techne logos it's being known by technology um in some artificial conduits so yeah definitely some those are some of the biggest challenges of our days how we're going to become saints amidst that is that we're going to have to fully engage with these cultures um with the technological culture with the lust culture with the dehumanization culture with the sense of the lack of wonder the lack of transcendent and we're gonna have to really start imbuing those cultures with christian genius christian life and number one through our own witness of life through word and action I mentioned just a few minutes ago how every challenge can also be seen as an invigorating opportunity. And that's kind of, I see the flip side of each of these three things. For example, social media, you know, working with Bishop Barron at Word on Fire, we're we're seeing the unbelievable fruit of using social media to evangelize in ways that we've never been able to do in church history. Like we can put out a video and reach tens of thousands of atheists instantly. Mm When would we? When would the church ever be able to do that? When would an atheist ever come across a Catholic bishop, you know, in in the year five hundred, or the year thousand, or fifteen hundred? Right. But we're saints today. God has put us in this time, in part, to use these tools that He's given us, like the social mm-hmm. media. And then I think of lust and pornography. I I remember this line from Bishop Thomas Olmsted's document into the breach. He's the bishop of Phoenix, and he wrote this beautiful. Mm beautiful is probably not the right word, profound document on Christian masculinity and manhood, Mm. what it means to be a Christian man. 
And he has a section in there on pornography. You know, so many men, even within the church, struggle with pornography. And he said, imagine standing before the throne of God on Judgment Day, where the great saints of ages past, who themselves dealt with preeminent sins of their own day, Mm -hmm. but imagine those saints saying to each other, we dealt with the trouble of lust in our day, but those 21st century men, those happy few battled the beast up close. Mm. See, to me, that just wow. that sets f- fire wow. to my heart. That invigorates me to think, yeah, it's hard to be a man today. It's hard to battle lust and fight against pornography. But in some ways, we're fighting this beast more closely and more aggressively than any saint has had to fight him in the past. And be- because yeah. of that, there's a certain... There's a certain honor, there's a certain excitement about this battle that we've been uniquely given. And then finally, in regards to the transcendent thing, I remember uh, getting so into the TV series Vikings. You know, I love <laughs> Vikings in general. I love Viking culture in yes. general. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> Father Blake for, um, for what was it? Was it for Christmas? It was for Christmas. He gave me a Viking drinking horn and I don't even drink, <laughs> but I have my, <laughs> my Diet Coke and my, and my Viking drinking horn there. He desecrated that drink <laughs> with Diet Pepsi. How we need more mead, he? more ale. <laughs> Instead of mead. <laughs> Anyway, I remember getting into the show Vikings, which for a time was my favorite TV show uh, ever, ever. I've watched the whole first several seasons multiple times. And there's, I mean, spoiler alert, there's some, you know, gratuitous, certainly gratuitous violence, some sexuality, things like that might not be best for everybody. But what struck me in that series more than anything was the religious dimension. It raises the religious questions better than almost any secular series I've seen. What was especially notable was that every single character, and I'm making zero exceptions here, every single major character was religious in some way. So you had the English, they're Christians. You had the Vikings who believed in the Norse gods. You had the French who were also Christian. You had various Mm -hmm. pagan groups and pagan tribes. They all had religious ceremonies. They all made sacrifices of some sort. They all prayed. They all had some sense that there's more to this life than the material world. And as you said, most of our culture, it misses that. We're disenchanted. We don't think that there's more than what the materialist worldview offers. And so here's yet another opportunity for those of us striving to be saints, to reawaken the disenchanted culture with the transcendent. Yeah, no, absolutely. The ancients, we may be smarter than the ancients were, but they are more intelligent than we are. And there's a difference between being smart and being intelligent. Intelligence, that wonderful word, intelligere, what it literally means is in Latin is to read in between. It means to, to literally see, to be able to, to see in between the lines, to see into the very depths of reality, the very depths of things. That's what it means to be intelligent. To be smart means to be sought to solve an equation. That's what smart people can do. But to be intelligent means to know why I exist. That's intelligence. And the ancient world had a much deeper sense of intelligence. They were much more in tune with human existentiality than we are nowadays. And this is why you would never find in the ancient world anything equivalent to a modern atheist at all, because they're not foolish enough to fall into such a, a folly. They realized that there is just too much evidence to suggest that the human soul does not desire transcendent reality. There's too much ache, there's there's too much uniqueness in human existence to negate the the existence of a spiritual realm. 
Yeah, so it is. It's something very fascinating that that we need to reclaim it. And what I, the hope amidst this is, I was recently on a on a little TV show um, here locally with a medical doctor. We had a relationship. We had a um, a conversation between the relationship of medicine and religion. And I mentioned that the silver lining in this cloud is that millennials and post millennials are getting really wrapped up in this sort of you know, new age spirituality because we were raised in a heavily atheistic civilization and we're starting to get the sense that that doesn't nourish our souls a lot. We just don't want to admit that we can find our happiness back home where we were raised, which is our Catholic faith. And so we want to go try to find it somewhere else mystically like Buddhism or something like that. So, um, but so the sense is there of the, of the transcendent and spiritual. We just need to properly, you know, orient it. All right. Well, we tried to keep this 30 to 45 minutes. I'm, I'm thinking this is going to be a pretty common problem with the two of us of, of extending these conversations far too long. So I'm going to try and wrap it up here. I sure, think we sure. can probably assume that we're going to have dedicated episodes to each of those subtopics yeah, that we just sure. talked about from the abuse crisis to social media and technology to lust, pornography, transcendent, all that stuff. So we'll unpack mm -hmm. those, I'm sure, much, much more uh, down the line, but let me let's let's close with this, Father Blake. I'm going to ask you this mm -hmm. question because it maybe okay. sums up the whole thing. What would you say to someone who came to you and asked, "Why was I born now? Why did God put me here? How would you answer that?" Yeah, uh, to to become a saint. I know it sounds repetitive, but it it's the clearest, most perfect answer. And when I say that, I don't mean just to. I don't mean that in the simplistic sense of just trying to be a good person. To be a saint, what makes a saint? A saint is someone who vehemently struggles, strives, wrestles with their age. When you look at the lives of saints such as Catherine of Siena, here is a woman that was not disconnected or lived in abstraction from her history, lived in abstraction from her age. She was immersed. She wrestled with the greatest tragedies of her time, two of which were huge, the Black Plague and the other being the Avignon Papacy, the fact that the popes were no longer living in the city of Rome. And does she run away from these things? Does she just say prayers amidst those things? No. She allows her encounter with Christ to be formed by a deep mystical piety. And from that piety, it flows into this evangelical zeal that literally changes the course of history. That's why you were born in this time. <laughs> you were born to do the same exact thing. You were born to wrestle with the age, to get bumps and bruises along the way through either struggling with your own personal sin or maybe with the sins of others. And amidst that struggle to grow in virtue, to grow in holiness, almost like a warrior when he's trained, you train first with wooden swords and you get hit a bunch by your master when you're a young squire, but eventually that's so you can become a knight and go out to battle in actual field. And so to wrestle with our age, to understand the aches and the groanings of our time, and to really bring those to Christ so that they could help sanctify the culture. That's always been the vocation of Christians throughout her past, for our past two millennia has been the same over and over and over again, to sanctify the age in which we find ourselves. And you have been found within this age. And it's not to question why. All you have to question is how are you going to sanctify what's been given to you? Well said. One of our mutual friends and heroes, G.K. Chesterton, said that mm -hmm. every generation is converted by the saint who most contradicts it. Yeah. I think that pithily yeah. summarizes a lot of what we're getting at here, that here's all these problems with the culture that we've just happened to be born in. Mm -hmm. The saints will be those who arise in contradiction to those challenges yeah. and problems. So 
Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. That's what Father Blake wants. That's what I want. That's what you want watching and listening this. So let's do That's it what together. God wants. That's what God wants, obviously. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks so much for listening to the second episode of the Burrowshire podcast. We've got several more lined up here. If you want more information on the podcast to check out past episodes, go to burrowshirepodcast.com. Please, we mentioned this in the first episode. If you like this, please share it around, especially as we're kind of a new uh, podcast. We're just getting out there. The more people we can spread the word to, the better. So if you like this, share it with your friends, share it with your family, tell fellow parishioners, maybe tell your priest about it. Um, We'd like to spread the word as far as we can. So the Burrowshire Podcast, and it can be found at burrowshirepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week.